And I have to say, in Atlanta in 1990, in that regard, there was nowhere to go but up from the point of view of street environment. It was sad. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shukvastan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I think we're going to make it. I think so, too. I think there's actually going to be a Tokyo Olympics. <laughs> Woo! Oh, I'm not going to jinx it, though. <laughs> there, People are there. Athletes are there. I know we're getting all the Instagram and Twitter pics of what the village looks like and what the cafeterias look like and the training facilities and athletes are showing us their test runs in the various venues. So we're really there. It's exciting. But we're not there. Right. We're not there. I'm trying not to think about that. So I decorated the house yesterday. Which I saw, which was fantastic. <laughs> now, uh, we'll send out a picture because what is on the second floor? Okay, so I have an, on the the porch, we have our Pan Am weightlifting championships that were held in Chicago in maybe 2009. We have a USA Wrestling Olympic flag, uh, courtesy of the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant. And then I got a Team USA banner. And then hanging from actually our third floor windows, but it hangs down to the second floor, are light pole banners from the Chicago 2016 bid. So when I lived in Chicago, the mayor then had auctions every year and would auction off different light pole banners. And I really wanted a 2016 set. And I, I really wanted fencing because Ben actually knew the fencer who was the model for it. And then I really wanted archery, but boxing was the only one I could get. So it's a, it's a double banner that's a boxer. Well, it's very cool. And you are putting us all to shame. Well, you know, we're working on it. <laughs> I still have to go through the box of decorations. And then there are like two party stores I need to go to. <laughs> Basically, cool. my decorations are going to be, I might possibly stick like a multicolored ribbon in my hair. I just. Yeah, yeah I, know, I understand it. It was a lot to get this stuff out too. I am making the jello though. Oh, Went well, the there you store, go. Got my five colors of jello. <laughs> That we need pictures of. Yeah, because I got to tell you, when you buy the blue jello, the checkout girl looks at you a little funny. <laughs> All right. We have tons of Tokyo stuff coming later on in the show, including how you can play Keep the Flame Alive opening ceremonies bingo and how you can join our Tokyo 2020 Fantasy League. But first... Today is the 25th anniversary of Atlanta 1996, so we are talking about the legacy of those games from the city planning perspective. We are joined by Randall Rourke and Michael Dobbins, who, along with Leon Eplin, wrote the new book, Atlanta's Olympic Resurgence, How the 1996 Games Revived a Struggling City. During the Games, Randall was the Director of Planning and Design for the Corporation for, the, for Olympic Development in Atlanta for the design of public projects in 
during preparation for the 1996 Centennial Olympic Games. Michael Dobbins was Atlanta's Commissioner of Planning, Development, and Neighborhood Conservation from just before the Games and for the following six years. We talked about the legacy of those Games and how the city fared. Take a listen. Randall and Michael, uh, thank you so much for being here. Your book, Atlanta's Olympic Resurgence, How the 1996 Games Revived a Struggling City, just came out. Let's talk a little bit first. You were both involved in the planning of the Games. What were your roles in before, during, and after the Games? Uh, Randall, we'll start with you. Okay, let me start first. As you know, there's a third author who uh, yep. tragically passed away, Leon Eplin. All three of us had planning positions in different capacities before, during, and after the Games. Uh, Leon was commissioner of planning for the city, actually actually in the 70s, in the original two Maynard Jackson administrations, but uh, came back in the 90s and was the primary author of the Olympic uh, development plan for the city uh, leading up to the Olympics. So he's the before. And uh, I was hired in 1993, three years to go, as the planning director for the Corporation for Olympic Development Atlanta, which was the corporation the city set up to do most of the improvements outside the Olympic venues. And we did that up through implementation until that corporation, CODA, dissolved in 1997. And I'll let Mike take it from there. Yeah, so I... I uh came to Atlanta in, in 1996 in June, uh, about two, two and a half months before the Olympics. I was hired as the Commissioner of Planning, Development, and Neighborhood Con Conservation in the Bill Campbell uh, uh, administration. So I picked up and, and sort of took up the role that Leon, I, su I supplanted Leon, and I, he and I dovetailed very nicely in the transition between all the work that he was doing and uh, his advice and guidance on where things were and how to get things done. And that was uh, very instrumental in the period that I had served as commissioner, which is about six years uh, after that. And the department, just just uh, by that time, uh, you should be aware that the, the my department included uh, planning and zoning and uh, building permitting and inspections and code enforcement and housing and community development and human services. So I had, a, I had a big, expansive kind of a role. So that means we uh, went from about 1990 to about 2005 in capacity in one way or another, and that's the period we cover in the book that we loosely refer to as the Olympic period in Atlanta. Which is interesting because it, it, the Olympic period really kind of is a lot longer than people think. Oh, People might remember the run-up to the Games, and then the Games happens, and then people kind of forget until they go, oh, what, what happened at those games? But the plans get that get set in place really have a long ways after the games to really realize some of them, correct? Yes. Correct. And really, the book is, is really about that, uh, the legacy that was left. And, and the period we cover is a little bit longer after the games than the run-up. And uh, a city receives a bid about five years ahead of the game. So there's a full five-year period of preparation for any city that, that wins a bid for the Olympics, for the Summer Olympics. I think that's true for the Winter Olympics, too. Uh, you know, in reading some of these plans that the city had, I don't know how you did some of this stuff in 
the amount of time that you had, to be quite honest. But that's going to get ahead of ourselves. I'm really curious, what was Atlanta the city like when it won the bid? So we're talking late 80s, 1990s. What was the city like for somebody living there or even in the, the surrounding area? Uh, I'll take a shot. Mike probably has comments too. And we do start out covering that. That's uh, the first chapter really trying to introduce the city at that point and covering a, a lot of time leading up to it because the city really was at uh, a, a nadir of disinvestment, white flight and problems, actually had lost 20% of its population. And when I say city, I mean this, the center city jurisdiction, city of Atlanta. The region is another animal which we should include in our discussion, but the city of Atlanta itself had lost 20% of its population. And most of that you could say was due to to, uh, white flight. And that produced a lot of disinvestment downtown. So there were uh, were problems. And uh, the Olympic uh, bid, the award, could not have come at both a worse time and a better time because it really provided a, a leverage point to begin to think about turning uh, turning that around in a number of ways. Mike, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think what is what it was like was a city with broken sidewalks, empty storefronts, no trees, no attention to sidewalks or or any travel modes other than and no white people riding on MARTA, uh, that kind of thing. And it was uh, so. It, and, and as Randy said, we lost 100,000 people from 1970 to 1990, 500,000 to 400,000. And it was a it was a pretty rough place. A, a lot of empty storefronts. Uh, Georgia State University was basically a walled bastion. Georgia Tech was a walled bastion. There was no interconnectivity between them and the city they lived in. And I think, as Randy and I have talked about, I think it's, I hope it comes out clearly in the book, what was interesting was that ACOG, which is the private sector initiator of the Olympics, basically saw this as a series of venues, whether they were hotels or sports events or whatever, they really didn't have a concept about connecting these venues together, how to get people to them, what that experience would be like, and so on. And so starting with uh, with Leon's uh, Olympic Development Plan, there was a lot of attention given, okay, we're planners, we're about connectivity. We need to figure out how all these things that hadn't really been thought about are going to connect. And as I agree with you wholeheartedly sort of reviewing all this, it was stunning that Randy and Clara Axum, his boss, and Coda were able to accomplish what they were able to accomplish in a, in a, in a city governmental structure that was uh, not particularly smooth or functional at the time, uh, somehow got that done and got it done for a remarkably small amount of money. Uh, I still, I was just getting here when that work was wrapping up and uh, I, you know, having now been in Atlanta for what twenty-five years, uh, you're, I would really amplify your comment. Somehow, uh, that that activity, and basically, what it did was transform the public canvas of our city from one that was really off-putting, and dirty, and unpleasant, and and sun-baked, no trees, to one that began to 
really transformed the whole character of the downtown and, and, and as the book says, sort of later on Midtown and on the east side where the ripple effect of, these, of, of the attention that Coda and Randy were able to accomplish began to so, sort of have impacts that, that uh, I think accelerated uh, regrowth and redevelopment and taking advantage of the new demographics that were simultaneously, coincidentally, and serendipitously occurring where people were beginning to say, you know, it might be all right to live downtown. There were there was no, I'm actually living in the one of only two buildings that housed residents in the downtown of Atlanta at the time. So it's sort of across the board. Another aspect of that, which is in the book, and Randy can speak a lot more to, is the uh, a very uh, robust, vigorous, reasonably well-funded public arts program uh, that really shifted uh, people's attitudes and ideas about what, what, what Atlanta could be. Actually, it wasn't funded at all. We stole money from every other pot we could find to make it work. <laughs> I don't know if there's a statute of limitations on that. One of the things you both mentioned in your answer was race and the question of race, that white flight was an issue in Atlanta. And then within the bid itself, there was a large black community, white business and government leadership. So let's talk a little bit about the racial tension, both in the city and in the economic development of the Olympic uh, Park. Well, uh, of course, there was always tension, but Atlanta also was, as you might remember called the city too busy to hate. Uh, and it did develop a loose and sometimes uneasy alliance between that white business structure and the black leadership uh, to get uh, some things accomplished. Although a lot of times it was, it, was, it was difficult going. And that black political leadership was in place since 1973 when Maynard Jackson was the first black mayor elected in the, a large city in, in the South. So uh, that coalition was not non-existent. It just was loose and sometimes difficult. But the communication was enough there for that process to begin to, you know, at least sit down in the same room and try to figure out how this was going to happen. And, of course, the reality of a world event coming to your city in five years helps that along pretty well. (laughs) You're, you're really faced with, uh, with a deadline that, that doesn't change, you know. So everybody, um, everybody got busy. That whole process, uh, a lot had been done in the 80s through the, the two administrations of, of Andy Young's tenure, uh, who was the mayor preceding the uh, Olympic bid. But that didn't really stop the disinvestment and the flight from the city. And that was that was still uh, still rather strong at the time. At the same time, you had a real explosion in in black arts and culture and as well as political leadership. So those elements were all really quite strong in 1990 when we were at a bad spot. So there was a lot to turn around, but there was also a lot in place, uh, which made it a little bit easier to get get going in that period of, of time. Yeah, I think it's uh, the the racial history of Atlanta is a racial disparities, the lack of racial equity and patterns that actually can lead toward racial equity 
uh, have been a, a long story of fits and starts, probably more fits than starts. And uh, that's even true, I think, now. We still are uncovering and finding uh, the depths of impacts. It isn't just Atlanta. It's, it's every city in the country has, has, has sort of witnessed the very frankly and openly both federal, state, and local uh, uh, discriminatory practices in jobs and housing and lending and banking and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the great things about what's happened over the last year is all, gee whiz, we're shining light on something that we turned the light off back in the 60s. And, and, and it hadn't really come back. And now we're seeing all this Jim sort of re, re, revitalization of Jim Crow ideas and Jim Crow notions. And it's a long way from over. Uh, what Randy's point, I think, is important is that the black business and, le and, and political leadership is very, very conscious of, uh, of, of what they need to do and, and, and are well organized to continue to press uh, you might recall that uh, Georgia actually voted for Biden and Georgia also voted for Warnock. So and that and that, you know, that's on the that's on the TV every night. Stacey Abrams, Stacey Abrams, who actually was an assistant uh, uh, attorney in the law department when I was in the city hall. Uh, and then, of course, she's risen to be uh, she was the, the speaker of the House, the state house and so on. So a very, very accomplished person. And. You know, in, in my view, the way to break this stuff down, I, you know, I'm just speaking from my own perspective. Yes, there is white supremacy, and yes, there are people with a whole lot of money that are going to make sure that, as best they can, that it re remains or even strengthens. And that's the struggle we're in. We were in the struggle then. Uh, we were coming out of the 60s and 70s stuff, and the city had made a lot of improvements uh, to try to break down the barriers. But there's a long way to go, and there's still a long way to go. I should mention there's really, in addition to the black political leadership and the strong white business community, there's really a third leg to the coalition. And that it was a very strong neighborhood movement that had emerged in the 70s of neighborhoods all around downtown, both black and white, and some mixed at, by that point. But th they were already strong. And they became even stronger in the face of possible construction of venues, stadiums, and other things that, you know, got their attention. And so they were a very strong voice from the very early planning of the Olympics and had a voice. So it really, there was a kind of third element to the, uh, the kind of dance that, that was required to, to get us, uh, you know, to the opening ceremony. And they were major, major players. I was just going to say one of the things that you mentioned in the book, there is the myth that a lot of residential neighborhoods were bulldozed for venues. And that was a myth. Yeah, not any. <laughs> uh, a, because a lot of the, there was enough vacant opportunity for that to happen. Where that comes from is largely from the Centennial Park process, because Centennial Park also involved some involved demolition of an older, lower density merchandising warehousing office district downtown. And it had very few, if any, uh, residences at the time. And there were some in that area. And for whatever reason, there was a sense that people were being displaced 
for for that project as well, which was right in the middle of downtown as well. But to my knowledge, I don't think any of the major venues had any displacement occur. They were all university situated or commercial district situation situated or already on sports related land or whatever the case may be. Mike, I don't know if you were and first of all, I, I don't think there was any residential displacement that occurred as, as a result of the Olympics. The link that people had drawn is that the housing authority, which was, had been in a troubled state by HUD for, for many years, uh, initiated separately, but linked obviously because of the time frame to uh, demolish and replace the uh, uh, housing project that lies between downtown and Georgia Tech and and to create uh, what is now called Centennial Place using uh, HUD uh, monies uh, called Hope 6, which is administered at the time by, guess what, uh, the governor of New York State. Andrew Cuomo came down here and, and, and it was his program and he dealt with it and so on. But the as Randy says, the people who actually the Olympic projects did not displace uh, existing residents, except in a, in a limited way, the Olympic Village adjacent to the to the Georgia Tech campus, uh, the land for that particular project uh, had been purchased by the existing housing, by the housing authority uh, and, and sort of offered to use that land when they were already into a major rehabilitation program that had been approved earlier. And they actually yeah. scuttled that and replaced it with the Hope 6 program. So it's that project, by the way, was the first public housing project in the country built in 1934. And a lot of it was vacant by that time. And that is true. There were those two blocks that uh, were dedicated over to the high rise component of the village. That that's correct. But then the entire project was redeveloped, as Mike said, as a hope six mixed use uh, mixed income project. And all of the public housing projects, of which there were many, six, I think, surrounding downtown, during that same period were also reimagined and redeveloped as, as mixed income uh, neighborhoods, and almost all of them demolished and rebuilt. And so that may have played into the, uh, the displacement story, but that was a separate process uh, parallel to the Olympics. It's also uh, important to point out that one of downtown's great assets was lots of surface parking lots. Most of Centennial Olympic Park was surface parking lots. And uh, I agree with Randy, nobody was displaced. There were some uh, small shops and so on, businesses that, that were purchased, uh, but there weren't any residents in that area. And there weren't that many businesses. I mean, I think, I don't know, I don't remember we have a photograph in the book about that or not. But actually, the story on that's kind of interesting because uh, what I heard from uh, Central Atlanta Progress is that Billy Payne and the Central Atlanta Progress folks were all looking out across. It sort of dawned on them that, you know what, we don't have a central gathering place for these games. And we ought to worry about that. And they're looking down from a, I guess what the tenth story of a building looking over Centennial. Park. Ah, there's our there's our space, and and that's what prompted it. And then the World Congress Center, which is state agency, went about acquiring it and developing it, and and still are, and it's still it's still very active, very vital activity. I just drove by there a few minutes ago. Yeah, it's exactly. actually belongs belongs to the state. 
state of Georgia. But the Center for Civil Human Rights is there, and the World of Coke is there, of course. This is Atlanta. And, uh, and the aquarium is not only there, but has grown substantially. They've got a whole lot of new sharks, which I'm going to have to go check out. That's one thing about the park, the Centennial Olympic Park, was it did include additional area for uh, rede- redevelopment after the Olympics at the edge of and surrounding the park, which included those major facilities that Mike just listed, in addition to some housing. All occurred in the wake of the Olympics, actually, after the park was in and the uh, games were over. Um, I, I'm glad you brought up the strong neighborhood groups because that's a theme throughout your chapters, Randall, that the, the strength of the neighborhood groups that you, you had to work with. And the the Olympics covered a lot of neighborhoods. But one of the th- stories I was interested in learning more about was the building of Olympic Stadium and the protests that happened and then the working that working together you did to come up with solutions to get the neighborhood buy-in. That actually, all of that happened in detail before CODA was formed and I was not involved. I don't think I can give you the full story, uh, although some of it is recounted, is recounted in, in the book. And there was, a, there was a lot of negotiation there and a lot of it had to do with uh, jobs for construction and the degree to which uh, construction demolition would take place and and all the aftermath of taking advantage of the Olympic uh, Stadium construction that the that the neighborhoods negotiated uh, a piece of, and that that brought about, I think, the buy-in ultimately. The stadium itself, of course, was right adjacent to the Fulton County Stadium, the the home of the Braves and Falcons at the time. And so it, too, did not displace any residential, but the impact of a stadium of that size certainly got everybody's attention and brought about the, the negotiations. Yeah, I could I can uh, comment directly. I know the three gentlemen who worked together to put the heat on ACOG to assure that jobs be provided uh, for the construction of the stadium. Uh, Columbus Ward, who was the president of the People's Town neighborhood, uh, Stuart Acuff, who was AFL-CIO North Atlanta, and and Vincent Fort, who has been on the in the in the state senate, and and been an activist for a long time, and basically they they were ready, and they had uh, sort of phalanxes of neighborhood people, and and activists ready to move on to the construction site in the event that they were not able to bring to bring about the uh, and and of course that was the groundbreaking for the olympic stadium it would have had national and international probably some degree of coverage and they used that to basically pressure acog and actually at that time shirley franklin was the sort of community outreach link she's subsequently the mayor i don't know you don't know atlanta history but uh, anyway, they they uh, they were ready. They they had fifty at a time ready to move. Or they assumed that they would be uh, arrested, so they had fifty people ready to cap uh, pitch tents on the site, and they assumed that if those fifty got arrested, which they thought they would, then the next fifty would move in and occupy the site, and then the next fifty, and the next fifty. And my understanding is they negotiated all night long, and finally they got one hundred and fifty jobs promised 
where there wouldn't be a restriction of, you know, ban the box where criminal records and drug use would not be an obstacle to hiring provided that whoever was uh, accused or found to be abusing drugs or committing a crime would be off the scene. But so it was a it was a well-organized thing. And going back to the neighborhood structure, I think a, a little history there is really important because the strong neighborhood structure in Atlanta is nearly unique in this country. And it was basically Maynard Jackson and Leon Eplin who put it in place. I happened to be uh, also the planning director in Birmingham in an earlier life. And Birmingham was one of the other cities that put strong emphasis on neighborhood-directed planning, design, development policy. And, and so that was so that we call it the neighborhood planning unit system. There are 25 of them, only 24 at that time. But they were, uh, yes, they were recognized in, in law by the city. Uh, they had roles and responsibilities. They didn't have approval, but they had recommendation roles. And they have played a very significant role throughout the development. And then the question is whether the administration is going to listen to what neighborhoods are saying they want and need or whether they're going to figure out a way to duck around it. And we've gone up and down in that in that response between. But uh, when I was there, uh, Mayor Campbell, following uh, Mayor Jackson, uh, were, were wholly committed to paying attention and trying to listen to citizen guidance, not just on the Olympics, but on zoning changes and budgets and all kind of things, small projects. And so it's, it's and, and not many other cities have that. Uh, another side story relative to the neighborhood movement was the neighborhood movement grew and really cut its teeth on the fight over the, the freeways in the late 60s and early 70s. And then over the long negotiations, 20 years of negotiations over the right of way that had been stopped and abandoned for the freeway uh, after demolition had taken place. And there were six or seven neighborhoods involved there and they really became awfully well organized and really helped to move the entire neighborhood movement along so that when the olympics came along the neighborhood movement was really quite strong and they had been very active for 20 20 some odd years and and part of that was the actual organization set forth in the neighborhood planet unit neighborhood planning unit program of the 70s that mike was talking about freedom park is interesting it seems like it's got, like you said, decades of time taking to get to a stage where you get some of the park. And it seemed, it sounded like during your time and working with the Olympics that part of the park got done. And then since then, part of the continuing legacy is finishing yeah. the park, which is looks pretty amazing. It's a, it's a saga. And... It, it took a long time because even though the freeway was stopped, the Department of Transportation wouldn't let go of the right-of-way. And it took 20 years of negotiating and, and legal hassles and, and issues about whether the property should be returned to the people that owned the property to begin with before it was confiscated. So that uh, caused it to drag out a long time. And I'm actually very familiar with the cycle because... Maynard Jackson hired me to do the first concept plan in 1973 <laughs> of the Freedom Park. And in those days, it was referred to as Great Park. And there were several plans done along the way. Uh, but then when the Olympic period came and uh, Leon was back in the saddle, uh, he 
raise the money to do a full master plan for Freedom Park because he had finished the negotiation with the Department of Transportation to actually get a hold of the uh, right-of-way if they agreed to build a smaller parkway around the Carter Center. The Carter Center being part of the saga because it came in in the 80s uh, when the right-of-way was there and the negotiations were going on and, and President Carter was able to negotiate for land for his library and, and, and Center for Social Change in the middle of that park. So it's, it's happened in very small increments over a long period of time. And so when CODA was formed, I inherited the master planning process for Freedom Park. And we got the master plan done and we had a, a very small, in the scheme of things, grant of a million dollars to implement a very rudimentary first phase, which put a major trail in and really kind of uh, cleaned up that area uh, before the Olympics. It was really not a park yet to speak of, but it has become one. It's like 200 and some odd acres. And um, I think the, the largest park built, new park built in the United States in uh, the second half of the last century. And going strong, a, a conservancy formed after the Olympics and has really taken over uh, management of the development. Uh, and there's still phases to go to complete it. Now, I think the, uh, uh, the significance of what Randy just recounted in the Olympics is there's a fair chance that if the Olympics had not been coming, he would not have been uh, so much able to, to really move as far as we did. And that, that was true of a lot of projects in, in, in downtown Atlanta. The recognition is sort of, you know, and I have to give credit to the ACOG group because they really put a whole lot of, they really raised the citywide awareness of this thing coming, and and that allowed us in the in the bureaucracy to be able to also sort of uh, join with that wave as a way of getting our different departments to do things, and more importantly, getting the private sector partners to do things that they may not have uh, uh, had any interest in collaborating uh, without the the deadline, the absolute deadline, both. The one thing I think that, the, and I was in meeting and after meeting after meeting right after I got here, uh, and there was obvious and palpable sort of uneasiness between the sort of neatly dressed white guys and 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 our city administration. I was one of only two white guys in our cabinet, for example. Uh, the other guy ran the ran the jail, um, and uh, so th that pressure of time forced collaborations that probably would have been talked about, but probably wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had that absolute deadline. We had to meet. We were both, whoever, everyone in the room was committed to meeting the deadline. And that meant that a lot of people had to come off of their, uh, you know, maybe overly rebellious ideas or their over self-serving uh, kind of ideas. And, and, and that was actually pretty, pretty cool. You ask and you want your written questions, what would have happened ha of the projects that were done that if the Olympics had not gone on, I might address that. A lot of them were, were on the, on, you know, on the docket. A lot of them had been, had had plans done. A lot of them were in discussion. Many of them were not. Many of them were fresh with the Olympics. So you could say a lot of that was in the works, but it would have taken a lot longer because the coalition 
hadn't coalesced, let's say, as it did prior to the Olympics. And the funding, of course, uh, was, you know, straggling and, uh, and struggling. So a lot of that just came together as, as happens in, in preparation for an event like this. And, uh, and it happened and it happened in a hurry as opposed, you know, happened quicker than it might have uh, because because of the pressure and the, and the interest surrounding the games. And, and the the marker of the success of those projects was the streetscape and smaller park developments that CODA was able to accelerate and get done. Uh, I think the the idea of having a competition to fix Peachtree Street goes back into 1991. And the guy who won the competition was a friend of mine. And, and you know, the project really accelerated when the Olympics was announced. And somehow Randy and his and his cohorts were able to actually get, get it installed. And the, basically it set a whole new standard for what a street ought to look like. Started downtown, Midtown has extended it, Buckhead has extended it, Auburn Avenue has extended it. It's become sort of the model for how we improve streets. And a lot of that's been going on, continuing to go on. It's going on more and more places. And I have to say, in Atlanta in 1990, in that regard, there was nowhere to go but up from the point of view of street environment. It was sad. A lot of broken sidewalks, a lot of narrow sidewalks, and a, a, a lot of on-street parking, That uh, some of which was needed and some of which perhaps didn't have to be there. And street trees, non-existent, street signage, non-existent. It was pitiful. Street lighting, spotty. It was embarrassing. It was so bad. And so one of the things we did was to ta- we tackled that for one reason. We tackled it because that was what CODA was formed to do officially. Because when ACOG set the plan for the venues, only one of them really was sitting directly on a MARTA rapid transit station. And everyone knew that people would be arriving by transit and would be having to walk to a lot of those venues between transit station and venue. And so five pedestrian corridors were envisioned by the city and by ACOG to make the connections between transit and venue. And when CODA was formed, those were the only projects that we were handed and told that this is what we had to do. And so we began with that uh, charge and we expanded it to I think 10 corridors and 12 miles of streetscapes downtown and just pushed that idea because, because it had a lot of support. We found funding. There was some federal funding in place and we were able to transform the, the whole culture of street environment really kind of overnight uh, because of the press of the you know, Olympic pedestrian need. Of course, after all, having said all of that, they closed the streets anyway <laughs> between the venues and the train stations because there were so many people. They, the whole street was closed to carry the pedestrian traffic. One of the things that under Leon's uh, commissionership, he had a uh, one of his uh, staff was a woman named Allison Wooden, and they came up with this idea that we had all these vacant parking lots all over downtown. 
And they came up with the idea, okay, we're going to require the owners of those parking lots to plant trees, one tree for every eight spaces. And that was litigated instantly and, and lost and mitigated again and lost. And it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court refused to review the finding that, yes, the city has the ability to do that because it has stated in the comprehensive development plan that this is a goal. And that's another another part of this is the critical importance of having a comprehensive development plan that lays down policy that's clear enough and specific enough that it can begin to trump the sort of uh, one-off development initiatives that whoever developer, Joe Q developer, wants to do this or that. So that was pretty cool. But the connectivity framework that that Randy's projects were were critical, and and they've been and they've advised uh, all kinds of stuff, and still are uh, up and down the city. One thing that we bring out in the book is that the the venues themselves, many of which sort of existed in in one form or another, as as a basis for winning the bid. This city, both the housing, the venues, the connectivity framework. Uh, all still exists or has been transformed and upgraded. Uh, and, and that's fairly unusual among Olympic cities. You know, Athens and, and even Barcelona, to some extent, they have major Olympic venues that are standing empty or vacant or deteriorating. Sydney, the same thing. One of the things that bugs me, I think, about anti-Olympics activists is the lack of knowledge that a lot of projects don't get started or don't have that impetus to get finished because because of the Olympic deadline. And you've talked a little bit about some of the things that we wouldn't necessarily notice, sidewalks, trees, all, all of that is streetscaping. All of that may not have happened without the Olympics or would have happened very at a much slower pace. Correct? Definitely true. Correct. Yeah. Two bond elections. We had one in 1994, and we had another one in 1999 to continue the work. With the 1999 uh, bond uh, referendum in Atlanta was rather stunning in a number of ways. First of all, before the 1994 bond referendum, bond issues had been routinely failing. And, and the, the 94 one won, probably because the Olympics were coming, and I think the 99 one was approved uh, by 85% of the electorate when the mayor was not a very popular guy, particularly among white people, in fact, really only among white people. And uh, it won by 85%, and that was to continue on with what we had started. We called it a quality of life bond election, and it, it, uh, it, it passed and was approved. So it was not just setting up for the Olympics, but it was also public support funding for continuing the efforts that uh, people felt were improving the quality of their lives. What were some of the things that didn't work? We had a palette of a lot of projects that we thought we could get done. And, there, and of course, we didn't know uh, because the money wasn't there and uh, the support wasn't there. But we pushed right ahead on all of them thinking that we'd just keep pushing until it was very clear that the money and the time was not going to make it. And so it is simply in the point of view of the amount that was required, amount of time, money, and support that was required. We had several projects uh, drop away, not really anything particularly uh, wrong about them. There were, there were a couple art projects that might have been controversial, but they were not particularly well 
the funding didn't appear that it was going to be there anyway. But there were no uh, major projects. And for me, the biggest disappointment, because the the other half of CODA's agenda was neighborhood redevelopment. And we knew from the start that in three years, we weren't going to do a lot of redevelopment. It was absurd to think that. And we thought what we could do is change the culture of redevelopment and change the machinery, public uh, machinery of redevelopment, and create a process that might be able to be continued. And so we we did that and we put in place that process, which Mike really pick, picked up after the Olympics, but unfortunately not a lot of actual redevelopment was done in the period leading up to the Olympics, except for the, the public housing redevelopment that we mentioned and some uh, scattered independent projects, scattered uh, singular projects all of the neighborhood plans were in place and passed and adopted, and which was our, our main goal to make sure that was done before we left uh, in 1997. So that was disappointing to me that we didn't get any further, but we did set the machinery up for it to continue. Major, there were no big projects, construction projects that, that really didn't get done. I'll just stop and think about that for a minute, that we, that we actually started that were on our plate to begin with. Uh, CODA uh, had, there was a sunset provision in the development of CODA that we knew that it was going to dissolve in 1997. And a lot of people, it, it had enjoyed some success and a lot of people didn't want that to happen, but there was a major process, transitional process that Mike oversaw, the, the Renaissance project under Mayor, Mayor Campbell right after the Olympics that, picked up the energy of the Olympics and said, where are, where is the city now? And what can we put in place to, to keep, to leverage what we've done going at, in, from a point of view of public, public policy. And then CODA did have a successor organization, the kind of super development agency that, that was established to pick up a lot of the same functions. So, there was some continuity there, even though CODA itself was dissolved uh, after the game. Uh, we already had some locally based community development corporations, neighborhood initiatives that came out of the neighborhood that were supported through block grant funds. Uh, a number of others came to be. But the biggest disappointment, and keeping in mind that we had the uh, the reference of the uh, push to get jobs into the community with the stadium, uh, that's an idea that has come to be called community benefits. And that would be called a community benefit agreement in current parlance. That is, that if somebody's going to spend a bunch of money, what's in it for the people who are most impacted by it? And what does it do for the wealth divide? What does it do for the race divide? And, and so on. And that's my biggest disappointment is that in, 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 in 1970, we had about 500,000 people. 1990, we had about 400,000 people. About 20% of those people, between 20 and 25% of those people were living under the poverty line. So what happens right now, we still have 20, 25% of the people in the city living under the poverty line. That's my biggest disappointment is if we're going to do big projects, we've got to be very explicit about you know, those projects don't happen with a whole lot, without a whole lot of governmental support, whether it's money or zoning or entitlements or different kind of things or, or street improvements or whatever. 
and and uh, I, I get increasingly frustrated that uh, uh, where we really had teed up the idea of sharing uh, wealth where where it comes from, whether it's developer or uh, some other private investment, and that there ought to be something explicit that redounds to the benefit of the people who are feeling the greatest need. And that pattern just simply hasn't gained ground. There have been a lot of people working to try to make something like that happen. And it's always a huge struggle. It's always resisted, particularly resisted by the uh, the sort of the uh, the ruling class, which is mostly white, but also resisted by existing laws. You know, you all, I don't know how much you follow this kind of field, but there's sort of a national debate going on about, about zoning laws and how the zoning laws are systemically racist and discriminatory. And a lot of jurisdictions all over the country are trying to deal with that, including including Atlanta. And it seemed like when you, and now, you know, we have a, we have a big investment binge going on. The city's doing great and all kind of stuff coming on. Georgia Tech's transformation, which we get into the beginning of in the book, you know, as as now we're bringing, now we got Microsoft coming to the west side of Atlanta and Amazon coming to the west side of Atlanta, a big acres project. And, uh, And actually, I'll be teaching this fall my students about how do we, how do we work to inculcate values that are community driven of community need and make sure that before we give the way the store, we get something back for it that actually improves a lot of the people who are there. You've heard about displacement and gentrification. Those are issues that are really uh, taking off in the areas where Microsoft and Amazon are beginning to fund. And there are a lot of local groups that are working, some of them fairly effectively, about trying to to implement this. So we, we need to have uh, the private sector to come along and recognize that the the spiraling wealth divide that is occurring in Atlanta we're we're the we're the city worst off in terms of the division between rich and poor in the country, and and we were then and we still are and that's that's a, that's a great frustration for me and it's the kind of thing that you can deal with almost block by block or you can deal with it by policy overview and all that kind of thing. But I'm still working at it. You all ask a question about Olympic uh, finances and ticket sales and that sort of thing, which we cover somewhat in the book, which is an interesting quick story. Uh, what we point out in several places in the book that that in the context of the Olympic movement, the Atlanta Games are really something of an anomaly. In fact, a big anomaly. And when you look at it from point of view of money spent, it really was the cheapest Olympics in the last 50 years largely because uh, Billy Payne and ACOG said it was going to be. They were going to to be efficient with their investment. They were going to break even. There was not going to be any public debt. And lo and behold, all that was true in the end. Uh, they spent a little under $2 billion. And then another billion, we've, we've analyzed it uh, for this book, and we've added the, another billion to the cost that came from other sources that were improvements that, really had to happen by the Olympics, and that included what CODA did. So the total cost of the games was about $3 billion. And you compare that with at the other end of the spectrum, Beijing, which we think was somewhere around $50 billion and maybe more. And that comes a lot when you have major uh, autocratic uh, governments, uh, you know, investing in the games on a national level. And in, in the United States, we almost always are pursuing doing the Olympics on a some form of private formula of one kind or another. It is actually kind of interesting that the federal government did an audit on the three games that happened in the States uh, in the last 20, 30 years. 
Los Angeles, uh, Salt Lake City, Atlanta. And there actually was quite a bit of federal investment. It just didn't, it wasn't always direct. It was indirect across a whole lot of agencies and different funding programs and so forth. And that was the case in Atlanta as well. Some $600 million of federal money was, was invested in the games. But the, the other half of that formula that we point out in the book, which surprised me, was among all of those Olympic games in the last 50 years, Atlanta sold the most tickets and had the highest attendance. And at the same time, was the cheapest. So you have to analyze those two things separately, probably. Atlanta was in the middle of the United States. It was easy to get to by car and by plane. And a lot of people came because they could. And the tickets weren't too bad. And so it just a whole lot of people were here for, for the Olympics. And so uh, the, the attendance was very high. Uh, the, most games sell and generate about eight to nine million tickets. I, I'm not sure what Rio did, but that was the case. London sold just about the same number as Atlanta, but all the others were quite a bit smaller. A lot of the more remote from a world point of view, Olympics, people buy the tickets, but they really don't come because it's a difficult thing to do. For example, Sydney, uh, great Olympic Games, but it was not a full house uh, because accessibility as much as anything else. So it was the cheapest games and the most attended, well-attended game. And it broke even. And there were small but catalytic uh, catalytic investments around around the city. So what, what, what we call in the book, we call it small ball Olympics, which is maybe a good formula or a good, a good model, uh, maybe for Olympic movement going forward, where, where the Olympics has become ridiculously expensive and, and almost pricing itself out of existence in addition to all the other problems the movement has, uh, that it can actually be put on for uh, a smaller investment and still have a big impact. And so one of the reasons we wrote the book was to point that out, that the kind of contribution that Atlanta made to the Olympic movement as an anomaly in the Olympic movement. And uh, we wanted to make sure that was part of the book. Last question here, but how do people think of the Atlanta Olympics today in Atlanta? Well, you know, I brought up, I tell people uh, here in Florida, I'm writing a book about the Olympics. And the first thing I want to talk about is the bombing. Saying that's what most people want to talk about because of the most highly visible event. And it was tragic. And, you know, of course, it was, uh, it was certainly covered heavily. Second thing that uh, people remember were the, the tawdry commercial spectacle of all the vending tents. And it was awful. Uh, it was not regulated, and the vendors ended up not even making very much money, and it looked bad, and it, the, the world press didn't like it at all, and none of us liked it either. And I even likened, the, in, in the end, the, the spectacle of the Atlanta Olympics was more like the Texas State Fair than it was the, a Eurocentric uh, elite sporting event, because it was rowdy, and it was loud, and it was... Uh, rather tawdry and and on the other hand it was fun and it was loud and it was rowdy and everybody had a really good time and the sports events came off uh, very well managed and well well done so you can look at it that way in a way it kind of emerged as kind of a people's olympics as opposed to a, a kind of elite 
event. But the whole world was here and they saw it. And I think there were some things about the Olympics that, that uh, didn't go well, at least from the point of view of the international press. And so a lot of people remember those things. But we wanted to, in this book, make it clear that there were a lot of good things, in many cases, a lot of small good things, but they had the effect of uh, creating a kind of sea change in Atlanta in-town culture that I think has is, is held um, pretty well in the 25 years since. It, it's interesting, and in, in your question is that uh, doing little things positively, incremental development guided by a systematic set of plans and continuity of a planning effort are not the kind of things that get headlines. Uh, you you got to have a big splash. You got to have a big name superhero architect come on. By the way, Randy and I are both architects, um, uh, and and if you don't do that, you're not going to catch the the sort of sort of innate elitism that accompanies the Olympics. I, I grew up in the state that uh, you guys. I'm sure if I were to pose you this question, you could guess where I grew up. It was the only state that took a state referendum to reject getting the Olympics. Oh, uh, you grew up in Colorado. Thank you. You you knew. Okay. And so uh, I think the uh, it's interesting, too, in the local, I think the race issue comes up in the response and the subsequent response. Uh, people whom I've known a long time and have known well and have generally respected uh, termed the Olympics in Atlanta as the city having lost the opportunity. Now, when you've grown back, 100,000 people, and you've attracted successive greater and greater investment, albeit without the proper sort of distribution of the benefits of those investments, uh, how can they possibly still think of it as being uh, a lost opportunity? And the only thing I can come up with is it's a racial view. The mayor we had during that time is actually the mayor in place when all this stuff was happening, a guy named Bill Campbell, uh, was not... uh, (laughs) How, how would you characterize his 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 reception among the whites community, white business leadership, Randy? You got a way to comment on that, or not, uh, not popular? <laughs> and then you know that 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 coloring of the cities and its activities will continue on for some time. It has a lot to do with you know it's not just the city, but but cities everywhere in in light of the re-revelation of the discrimination that's been visited upon black people, people of color, people of divergent viewpoints, uh, systemically. It's built into the laws and so on and so forth. And uh, frankly, I think the Olympic movement has depended and had been literally depended on having a lot of billionaires from a lot of different countries uh, and and sort of uh, expressing a kind of an elitist perspective. And I think that might be why some people are resistant to it. Thank you so much, Randall and Michael. Their book is available for purchase in our bookshop.org storefront at bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod. Welcome to Shuklistan. The dulcet tones of Jason Bryant are in Fargo, North Dakota, announcing the junior and under 16 nationals tournament, which is kind of like his warm up before he goes over to Tokyo. You got to have a test event. Ice dancer Charlie White spoke to the Peninsula Skating Club, and that Zoom is still online, so we will have a link to that in the show notes. Decathlete Jordan Gray will be competing in women's decathlon at the College of San Mateo on August 21st and 22nd. (laughs) 
so much to talk about. So much to talk about. Before we talk about Tokyo News, I wanna we we need to thank our patrons first. Our our patrons help make this show possible with their financial contributions. Uh, we really appreciate what they do for us because it, it takes off some of the stress of putting on the show. If you are interested in contributing yourself, go to patreon.com slash flamealivepod. Patreon is kind of an ongoing donation site. So if you are looking to make a one-time donation, hang on tight. We're going to have a Kickstarter during the games. Uh, but back to Tokyo News, the organizing committee is publishing daily lists of how many people have to- uh, have tested positive for COVID-19 and who has tested positive because, hey, guess what? People are testing positive for COVID. And and also, guess what? The Olympic Village is not the sacred bubble that T-Bock thought it was going to be. I mean, did he think that it was going to be like one of those sci-fi films where you pass through the invisible screen and it was going to wash you of all COVID germs? Probably. But as of today, they've had 58 positive tests so far. Four of those are athletes, 17 games concerned personnel, five media, three Tokyo 2020 employees, 29 Tokyo 2020 contractors. So really, the bulk of the, the, the problems are in with the contractors. Which you assume are not necessarily native Japanese, but certainly people who are already living in Japan. Right, especially the Uzbekistan contractor who has been charged with sexual assault for an incident that happened at the National Stadium. Did that send you into orbit like it sent me into orbit? Uh, yeah, it did. <laughs> and, and then I kept wondering, huh, no foreign fans, but we can have foreign contractors. Yeah, we can have foreign rapists. Yeah, that too. Um Ugh. That does not stop everyone from showing up with masks on, including the Chinese delegation, because part of them arrived in Tokyo. And there was a video on Twitter where they not only had masks, they also had face shields or goggles. And then some of them were in hazmat suits. It was it was really kind of bizarre. It was sort of like at the beginning of the pandemic when I saw this guy in my grocery store wrapped in a black garbage bag. <laughs> <laughs> and he had holes cut out for his eyes. Wow. So as long as nobody shows up with the black garbage bag, I think we're okay. <laughs> uh, athletes and their uh, the officials for different delegations are settling into the village. Tons and tons of stuff online about what's going on. How are the beds here is the kit I have gotten. And like you posted on Instagram about uh, Heming Hu, who is uh, Millie Tapper's doubles partner for table tennis. And I just mesmerized by the bags of stuff he got. He's very active on Instagram and posts lots and lots and lots of stories. So if you want to see what's happening in the Australian block, definitely follow Hemminghue, and you will get some appearances by Millie Tapper, and he had the suitcase and how they were trying to sort through all the matching suitcases. <laughs> so he called it like the biggest game of Where's Waldo, trying to find his own suitcase, because obviously they all matched. But yeah, they got, you know, full wardrobes and all these shoes, and they have it all lined up, and just following the athletes on social media has been so much fun this time around because of all the, the extra touches it feels like they're doing since they're going to be so isolated. Exactly. And and we have talked before with different athletes about how, yes, they get a lot of kit, but that kit has to kind of last them 
for a long time because they don't make money to buy their own clothes. The New Zealand team athletes got their own personalized, I might say this wrong, the uh, Poonamu pendant, which is a Maori tradition. It's it's a very important symbol in Maori culture, and that's and when we've seen New Zealand uh, athletes be very emotional about getting one because that really means a lot to them. So that was really cool. What's not cool, if we could play cool and not cool, what was not cool was that the South Korean delegation, when they were decorating their balconies because the the village balconies are just being covered with flags and signs for different teams, they also put signs that had a historic reference to a past conflict with Japan on their, villa, their their balconies. And the IOC said, no, 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 that's Rule 50. Take those down. Right, because they considered it a political statement. And the funny thing was it referenced like a 14th century naval battle. Wow. But apparently is, yeah, it was so obscure. But apparently it is something that South Koreans have you know, sort of like remember the Alamo kind hmm. of significance in, in South Korean culture, how this Korean, gen, uh, I guess, admiral defeated the Japanese. And, and I'm like, that's just sloppy, you know, and you know, it was, I mean, they had huge, I mean, this wasn't just some handwritten sign. No, it was multiple balconies. Of these beautifully printed cloth banners. So I'm like, ooh, somebody was really making a point and right. it wasn't a good one. But the but the Olympics are apolitical, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, uh, that said, Team Korea actually has a virtual house that you can visit, which is is kind of interesting. We will have a link to that in the show notes and see. Uh, there's obviously no team houses this year that usually happen at games, but they are the ones that put on a virtual experience. So we will check that out for you. And weather, I've, I've been tuning in a little bit to some of the press conferences that have been happening. And so the weather people are starting to talk and it, it's hot. It's humid. The forecast for tomorrow is 92 degrees Fahrenheit with the real feel of 101. And so that would translate to 33 degrees Celsius with feeling the 36. So it is hot. It is humid. It might get a little bit cooler, but not much. So uh, they're trying to take a lot of preparations and precautions with, uh, especially with officials who have to be in the field a lot longer than athletes would or uh, other staff. So there's a lot of cooling vests and misting and fans and things like that. Speaking of cool, so Luca Jones, our canoe slalom athlete, posted that they go swimming in the water. Oh, do they? In the Oh, that would be fun. And apparently it is really cold. <laughs> that would be fun. It'd be like like the biggest the widest water slide. Speaking of water, now that you said that, um apparently Bloomberg reported that the marathon swim course area smells like a toilet. So the website Axios quoted Bloomberg in uh saying that there are Big concerns about the pollution levels in Tokyo Bay, where that's where the swimming portion of the triathlon is set to take place. And I'm not sure about marathon swimming, but at least there's going to be some swimming in here. Well, um, one of the athletes 
said it smelled like a toilet and uh the the problem is that wastewater and sewage combined with runoff all had to be treated before flowing into Tokyo Bay. And so I don't think that that system works all the time. Well, you know what we need to combine? What was this, the venue that had the oyster problem? Oh. Because that's what yes. one of the things oysters do is they do a very, very good job of cleaning water. So if we could combine those venues, we could solve two problems with one oyster. There you go. So it's seriously, why do they not ask, ask us? I don't know. But I do remember back to Rio when we talked to, you know, because the water there was an issue. But when we talked to Tessa Gobo, she said, yeah, we all jumped in after rowing and nobody. And, and I don't remember anybody getting sick from the water there either. You know, and I think a much bigger uh, issue in terms of water were the green pools. Mm-hmm. So, so marathon swimming in a toilet doesn't sound so scary. <laughs> of course, I'm not the one doing it, but that's. <laughs> We won't discuss that. Um, let's talk a little bit of opening ceremonies news. Uh, the musician Keigo Oyamada has stepped down as composer for the opening ceremonies after old reports of his bullying and abusive behavior resurfaced. So uh, this is from Reuters. It, apparently he was a pretty big jerk when he was younger and that has caught up with him. So he has resigned. Uh, no word on what that means, though. Will right, because he... if he's the composer, isn't he done? Uh, maybe he was also directing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, because that, that would make I sense. I the music's if... written. Yeah, but, yeah, which I didn't quite understand because, uh, yeah, the whole, like, so what happens? So we have very few people who are still working on this opening ceremonies. We lost <laughs> the artistic director. Now we've lost the musical director. and compo- it, Is it going to be just like Mr. Smith and a drum going, yay, welcome to Tokyo. Maybe they'll bring Mr. Bean back with his piano. Uh, the IOC announced the uh, recipient of its, its Olympic laurel honor I did not remember this from Rio. It was this is a new award that they started at the Rio opening ceremonies. It's to link the ancient Olympics and the focus on human development through peace and sport. So the person who is going to receive it this year is Bangladeshi Nobel Peace Prize winner Muhammad Yunus. And Yunus worked with with the IOC on its Young Leaders Program, the Imagine Peace Youth Camp, and the Athlete 365 Business Accelerator. In the whole discussion and debate about fans being at the games, because T-Bach is still hoping that numbers will go down enough that, at least for the second one, <laughs> yeah, I know you're shaking your head. <laughs> Again. We're all going to walk through the sci-fi bubble and it's just going to wash all the germs away. Yeah. So uh, T-Bach is hopeful that numbers will go down and fans will be allowed in the games. So, uh, our our friend Carlos Groman finally wrote an article about some athletes who were questioning why there are fans at sumo and at baseball, but the Olympics can't have any, which is something I keep bringing up. Because it does not make sense and it does not seem, it doesn't seem fair that the Olympics are targeted, even though, uh, and 
if you can have all these other sporting events or other concerts, I don't know what other kind of events are going on, but it can't only be sports in Tokyo. If they can have it, what makes the Olympics special about having a limited number of fans? Anyway, so there's that. There's going to be uh, Tokyo Close, the waterfront city venue area, which is going to have the cauldron and all the stuff. It was supposed to be a big public gathering place. That got closed. But our friend Roy Tomizawa noted that there are going to be some fans in certain competitions because there are going to be some football matches in Miyagi Stadium in Miyagi prefecture because their governor really wants fans in the stands so they will have about 13,000 there fans will also be allowed for football matches in uh, Ibaragi and for cycling cycling events at the Izu Velodrome in uh, Shizukoa. Roy did note that this is subject to change but right now that's where it stands. Now is this because they're all in different prefectures and those prefectures are under different rules i believe so so it's sort of like here in the united states where new york had rules and um, literally a mile away in connecticut i had very different rules yes i believe that is correct so you are talking about yes prefecture boundaries at this point and Seeing that the velodrome could be having fans makes me very happy because uh, they're doing Kirin racing at the at, for track cycling, and that was developed in Japan. It is one of the four sports you can bet on legally in Japan. So I have a feeling that could be that could be pretty crazy. People who are not allowed to go, family members of athletes. So Team USA paired with NBC Universal and a couple of other sponsors to fly athlete families and friends to a mass viewing party. So uh, Rachel Bachman reported in the Wall Street Journal that they're going to fly two friends or and or family members per Olympian to NB- an NBC Universal Resort in Orlando, where they get they'll get free round trip air, they get four nights hotel, a pair of three day passes to Universal theme parks, and then they get to go to the NBC Team USA Hospitality Lounge for dinner and Olympic viewing, and of course there will be cameras there for reaction shots. They're doing a second one for the Paralympics, where they will fly those friends and family members to Colorado Springs and they'll get tickets to the USOPC museum and the Olympic training center and hospitality lounge and watch party and all that same airfare hotels. It was, it was also noted in the article that if the Paralympic friends and family members wanted universal theme park uh, tickets, because that's, you know, you could weigh, Oh, USOPC museum versus theme park. Hmm. They'd be able to get those at another date. Well, because what is NBC coverage in the U.S. without family reaction shots? Right. I mean, we have 7,000 hours of coverage to fill. At least two or 3,000 of that is going to be, you know, grandpa and mom, never mind husbands and wives and children. So they, they got to gather them together. And speaking of viewing parties, since we can't all be together, all of us are going to have a virtual bit of fun. We are going to have virtual opening ceremonies of bingo. So we will have a bingo card that is blank and you will fill it out with, uh, we'll have a list of buzzwords that you will likely hear at an opening ceremonies event. 
you fill out your own card with the the buzzwords and if you can black out the entire card you will get a prize and no cheating fill out your cards ahead of time exactly yeah so there will be rules attached but it will be take a photo of the card that you fill out and then take a picture of your blacked out card and don't black everything out just cross it out so we can still kind of see the word underneath it <laughs> but I have some Tokyo pins that I had for trading if I was because uh, I was supposed to be there. So I will be happy to share those with the top three winners. And we're going to post that in the Facebook group. That in the Facebook group. If you are not on Facebook and would like to play, email flamealivepod at gmail.com and uh, put bingo in the subject line. So we will get you a card ASAP. But that's not all. That's right. So Tokyo 2020 has a whole fan zone section and part of their fan zone section is a fantasy league. So we have set up the Keep the Flame Alive podcast league that if you would like to play Fantasy Olympics with us, please come and do so. So when you, you have to sign up for the fan zone and that's they'll call that an Olympic ID or you can, you can log in with a Google account or something like that too. But create your Olympic ID and you log into the fan zone. Then what you want to do is uh, join the fantasy section and you will need this verification code to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group league. It is K-M-A-N-X-W-5-V. So that's K as in Kevin, M as in Michael, A as in Andy, N as in Nancy, X as in uh, Xavier, W as in Walter, 5-V as in Victor. And again, we will post that in the Facebook group. We'll probably put it on the Facebook page as well. Right. And if you have any problems, just email us flamealivepod at gmail.com and we will get it straightened out so that you can all laugh at me at how bad I do at fantasy sports. So and I'm still working on it. You pick rosters of athletes for every day. And I it's, pick very, it's very detailed, but you could just be like me. Throw some athletes in there, see how you do. <laughs> or you could be like one of those crazy people who like switches people up every day and makes it all perfect. But do you know what would help people build their fantasy team? What? Knowing who's competing each and every day. And do you know how they could find out who's competing each and every day? Maybe with our new viewing guide ebook. We have an ebook. So excited about this ebook. So it li so we created an ebook. It is available on Amazon. We will have a link to that in the show notes. And it has each competition that's happening each day. It has weeks at the weeks at a glance. It has descriptions of the sports. We had a lot of fun putting it together. So you can get a copy of that as well. Yes. Amazon.com. Look for Keep the Flame Alive on Amazon. The podcast is also on Amazon, but you can the, the viewing guide will be there as well. There are two things I really love about this ebook is that every day we have a chart that shows all of the sports and what times they are. So you can see what overlaps and what doesn't and what's a metal sport and what's not a metal sport. So you can pick out if you really want to see a metal sport and there are three sports you love competing against each other, but just one's doing medals that time, you can figure out what to watch a lot easier. Um, the other thing I love is that it also includes the Paralympics. So most of the Olympic guides that you see right now are, are Olympics only. This one also includes Paralympics, so you can prep now for those games. 
Go we ahead. got some prepping to do. Yes, we do have some prepping to do. So we will get on it and call that a show. Hey, let us know your thoughts about Atlanta 1996. We'll get back to those games when uh, we'll get back to our Atlanta 1996 history moments when all the Paralympics are over again. But it was really nice to be able to talk about them on the day of the 25th anniversary. It, I, I did put on Twitter the opening ceremonies queued right to the pickup truck section. So be sure Bubba to go back Olympics, and never forget. <laughs> I might, I, I'm going to have to take 10 minutes and grab a box of Kleenex so I can watch Muhammad Ali lighting the cauldron again. Because that's really, it's one of the best ones. But yes, let us know your favorite moments from those games. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. One more show until the games. One more show. And it's my favorite shows that we do. Exactly. So we are having a contributor roundtable. Superfan Sarah and Book Club Claire will join us to talk about what we're looking forward to most. So join us Thursday for that. And then Friday, the game starts. Get some sleep while you can. Exactly. As we go out to music by Mercury Sunset, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. And we, yes, you and we, that sounds horrible, but that's grammatically correct. We can. Well, just we. Oh, why are they you and we? Why aren't we just we? (laughs) We compete in (laughs) record.